science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they and I it felt, felt, felt this. right. I was so and I just happy. Thought, well, I had figured it wow. out. It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week we're bringing you two stories about natural habitats, a city girl's first experience in the field, and an ecologist who falls into a science career to show he's different from his twin brother. Our first story this week is from Helen Chang. It was recorded in September 2016 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme was home. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, right here. Uh, My backyard was Manhattan. Yeah. Um, I learned how to be proficient in speed walking, jaywalking, and navigating through the complex maze of the MTA subway system. I didn't get my driver's license until I was 21, nor did I ever really need to drive. I was so used to walking on concrete sidewalks and asphalt streets. I didn't think about New York City as a natural place, that most of the city is on an island or three islands. Yeah, Brooklyn and Queens are part of Long Island, despite how much we want to deny it. (laughs) Sure, there was Central Park, but as a city girl, I didn't like to get my shoes dirty. I didn't like to sit on glass, let alone rolled in it. And I always carried hand sanitizer. Yet I enjoyed things with cute animals like whales and dolphins. I mean, honestly, what little girl didn't love a Lisa Frank rainbow dolphin? (laughs) I guess what drew me to animals in general was that it was something out of the ordinary, something you couldn't find in New York City outside of the occasional subway rat. I got my first glimpses of the non-New York City wildlife while volunteering at the aquarium. I saw bright, colorful fish, heard the loud roar of a walrus, and smell the pungent aroma of the colonies of penguins and their poop. (laughs) But these encounters were always blocked by some sort of barrier, seeing fish through a glass tank, hearing a walrus through a draped netting, or smelling the penguins through a chained fence. I was still walking on paved asphalt, heard the subway in the distance, and was being bumped and tossed around by the throngs of people trying to catch a glimpse of the animals. I knew I was still in the city. I was still in close comforts of the city when I left for college, being an hour and a half away on the Long Island Railroad. But one of the highlights of college was the opportunity to study abroad. And out of all places, I studied abroad in Jamaica. Not to be confused with Jamaica, Queens, guys. (laughs) I was going to study tropical marine ecology, but most excitingly, I was going to experience it. I was going to live it. So when I registered for the course, I had to sign a waiver saying that I was an experienced swimmer. I'll be honest with you, I knew how to swim, but I didn't know how to swim that well at the time. So I kind of lied on that application saying that I was a strong swimmer. So here I was, sitting down by the docks, close to where the course was being held. As I looked out to the horizon, I saw these turquoise blue waters that were so enticing to swim in, but it also looked deep. My friend Constance, who was taking the course with me at the time and who knew my dark little secret, 
sat next to me and said in an encouraging tone, don't worry, you'll float in salt water. Salt water, fresh water, pool water, what was the difference? I didn't know the physics of it all at the time, but she put on her swimming gear, jumped right in, swam a couple of yards away from me, and waited till I got into the water. So I strapped my new fins to my feet, put my mask on my face, put my snorkel in my mouth, took a deep breath, and jumped in. Great, my feet were touching the bottom. I was, the water was so dandy, I was feeling great, no problem. But Constance kept swimming further, and I knew I had to follow, and that my feet were not going to touch the bottom forever. So I turned my body horizontally. I slowly swam towards Constance, trying to see where she was, kept my head above the water. When I placed my face into the water for the first time, I panicked. I saw how far away I was from the, the sea bottom, and I freaked out. It was pretty darn far. <laughs> I tried finding the nearest buoy or pole, something to hold onto for dear life. This water's really deep! Constance heard my frantic yelling. She yelled back and said, Don't worry, you'll float. So I let go. I let my heart rate slow a bit, calming down, regaining sanity. When I finally gained the courage to place my face in the water, I did. This time, I was in wonder. I saw urchins like a field of spines. Crawling amongst them were crabs with brightly colored speckled shells. When I turned my head the other way, I saw shiny blue and yellow fish dart right in front of me and swim into an underwater horizon. I was fascinated to see all this different wildlife unobstructed by a glass wall. I was immersed in a different world. I felt like I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I wanted to study marine biology and swim in clear, warm waters every day. So I applied to graduate programs focusing on studying marine animal behavior, specifically with dolphins fulfilling that childhood aspiration. But none of those programs were available to me at the time. My sense of adventure and my interest in marine biology didn't stop. Rather, it took me on a brief detour to a New Hampshire estuary. And it wasn't as glamorous as the tropics. It was much murkier, murky enough to not see what was in front of you while you're swimming. It was muddier, that if you got stuck in the mud, you desperately needed someone to pull you out of it. And compared to those tropical Jamaican waters, just really, really cold. Here I was in this New Hampshire estuary, I was going to study the behaviors of a peculiar-looking animal that was ugly and creepy-looking. And that animal was the horseshoe crab. Not a crab at all, but more related to spiders and scorpions. Think of a horseshoe-shaped animal with six pairs of creepy, crawly appendages and a medieval, intimidating spear for a tail. These things are prehistoric looking, and they are. They're considered living fossils, having been around since the age of the dinosaurs. I was literally a horseshoe crab stalker in grad school. I tried to find where they lived in this New Hampshire estuary, following their schedules of when they would appear and disappear from the beach, and intruding on them when they were having some 
private meeting alone time. I remember the first time I went out at midnight to do field work. I had just gone out at noon that day in the sweltering heat counting crabs, and I had to go out again at night to make that day-night comparison. As I drove up to the beach, um, it was a beach that was sort of hidden away and only accessible by dirt road, I remember the place being a little bit more livelier during the day. Cars would be parked alongside the road, people would kayak in and out of the boat ramp, and children playing in the sand while their parents watched. But here I was, in the dead of night. It was dark and quiet. There was no one to witness me on what I was going to do. I remember watching the six o'clock news earlier that evening that there was a report of a murder in one of the nearby towns, close to where my uh, field site was. So as I drove up to the beach, I kept repeating to myself, count crabs and leave, count crabs and leave, count crabs and leave. <laughs> so when I arrived, I got out of the car, hurried to get all my equipment, locked the car, raced down to the beach to start counting. I stopped. I couldn't see much except what was illuminated by my flashlight, but I heard crickets chirping, the rustling of the leaves from the trees, waves slightly crashing along the shoreline, and maybe what I thought was a coyote's howl in the distance. I turned off my flashlight, allowed my eyes to adjust, and looked up. Stars, the Milky Way. It was this big, expansive space in a dark sky. I had never seen the night sky this way before. It was usually blocked by a street lamp or looked like washed out specks in a purple-gray haze. But on this night, the sky glittered across a pitch-black backdrop. I felt small and insignificant. It almost felt like it was an honor to be in that place and in that moment. I wanted to keep gazing at that night sky to feel that sense of wonder, calmness, and peace. I was stirred back to reality when I heard the occasional bumping of horseshoe crabs approaching the shore, as they'd done every year for millions of years since the age of the dinosaurs and even before. As magical as it was to be one with nature, I commenced with my duties. This was work for me. After telling my suit and tie friends from the sitting what I did for a living, they were horrified. Ugh, you work with that? How do you survive? I thought the job of a marine biologist was to play with dolphins all day. <laughs> hey, horseshoe crabs are really cool. <laughs> but... I felt a sense of pride for the work I did, that I was able to endure physical and mental struggles like walking through tall, tick-infested grasses to get to the beach, or swimming through muck and muddy waters, or trying to figure out how one thing works one way but not the other way for a very, very long time. This was about exploration, exploring the unknown, facing hardships along the way, finding new discoveries to unanswered questions, all the while marveling at nature's beauty and mystery. Thank you. That was Helen Cheng. Helen has worked at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration as a Sea Grant Nouse Fellow. 
As an interdisciplinary marine biologist, she works on a variety of projects involving research, education, and outreach, and science communication. Whenever she gets a free moment, Helen enjoys eating new and delicious foods around the city, hiking in the mountains, swimming in the ocean, and singing and playing acoustic guitar. Stay tuned for our next story after this message from our sponsor. This episode of The Story Collider is brought to you by 23andMe.com. As you might remember from science class, there are 23 pairs of chromosomes that make up your DNA. Well, that's where 23andMe.com, a genetic testing service, gets its name. 23andMe allows you to have access to information about your DNA. You can find out how your genes may influence your health, your ancestry, and even physical traits with over 65 online genetic reports personalized to you. So, how does 23andMe work? You simply purchase a kit on their website, 23andMe.com. When the test arrives at your home, you provide a saliva sample by spitting into a tube, the best part, and then you send it back. Once your DNA has been analyzed, you'll get to learn more about what makes you, you. We are all genetically 99.5% the same. Wouldn't you like to know more about what's in that last 0.5% that makes you unique? With 23andMe, you can. To order your kit today, visit 23andMe.com slash Collider. That's the number 23andme dot com slash Collider. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Tom Young Bear. It was recorded in November 2016 at Oberon Theater in Boston. The theme was Fish Out of Water. Anyone who knows me really well knows that if there's one thing that I definitely am not, it's a quitter. But there I was telling my PhD advisor that I was giving up $200,000 in prestigious fellowships and dropping out of graduate school. Why? Why would I leave academia at the beginning of such a promising career in science? Well, it all really began 37 years ago when a fertilized egg in my mother's womb divided into two. You laugh, it's true, sure. It's not just a cliche. When that egg divided into two, I became an identical twin. Um, I was first born, so everybody always asks the twin, who was born first? When anybody asks who was born first, I would proudly answer, I was, I'm the original. He's the copy. My twin brother, Kyle, quickly learned to respond by saying, that means that you're the rough draft, and I'm the final draft. But in a way, he was right. I was the rough draft. As a kid, I developed all these problems that Kyle just didn't have. I had a bad speech impediment for many years. I developed exercise-induced asthma and would often black out trying to keep pace with Kyle in sports. Most embarrassingly, I wet my bed until puberty, which wasn't until I was 16 years old, three years later than Kyle. Until then, I was the smallest student in the entire high school. Every girl that I had a crush on seemed to pay no attention to me. They all, I felt, would rather date Kyle. One time, Kyle and I were in the weightlifting room where I had, of course, taken up obsessively lifting weights, trying to make myself bigger and more attractive, And I overheard a friend ask Jamie Henderson, who I had a crush on for two years, which of the twins do you think is cuter? Her response, well, Tom is cute, but Kyle is the ruggedly handsome one. That really hurt. 
That same year, I went into a deep depression. I was diagnosed with OCD. I had a near suicide attempt, and I was placed on antidepressants. Even today, two decades later, it's still really hard to talk about that period of my life. But through all that, there was always one thing that I could do better than Kyle. Science. Science was my thing. It always came easy to me, and I loved it. My senior year of high school, I won numerous science awards and scholarships. I was featured in an article in The Oregonian about the work I did with injured wildlife, including a full front-page photo of me holding this majestic golden eagle named Caballero. That was huge. I was finally being recognized for something that I could do better than my perfect final draft twin brother. I finally felt like I could contribute something unique to the world. I went on to college where I became a marine field ecologist and I started working in kelp forests, coral reefs, and tide pools. I co-authored my first peer-reviewed publication. I won every single grant and fellowship that I applied for. When I told my wife that fact, my perfect funding record, my wife is a marine biologist, I think the, the words she used in response to that were, jackass. <laughs> Kyle and I drifted apart as he joined the Coast Guard to become a helicopter pilot. I applied for a course with Sea Semester that involved sailing across the Pacific Ocean while conducting oceanographic research. It would be a dream come true for me. Then right before the course began, I found a pea-sized lump on my right testicle. <clears throat> Within a week, I had three doctor's appointments a chest x-ray, a CAT scan, and an ultrasound. Lying there on the ultrasound table, my groin exposed, this cold liquid jelly and ultrasound transmitter pressed against my scrotum. I felt more awkward and uncomfortable than I ever have in my entire life. The radiologist pointed to a spot on the screen, a colorful spot, and said, the Doppler shows increased blood flow to the lump. That's probably a tumor you have testicular cancer. A part of me knew that those words, you have cancer, should have scared the shit out of me. But they didn't. I was numb. It was like I expected it, like everything I'd already been through in my life had prepared me for that. I asked the radiologist, well, what happens next? And he said, you need to have that testicle removed right away. A week later, not knowing whether the tumor had metastasized, I left for Woods Hole, Massachusetts with a very sore groin and an uncertain future. I began that course with C semester. <clears throat> My research partner, Steve Barton, started affectionately calling me lefty in reference to my recent amputation. Uh, and I, I experienced uh, regular ghost pains. I don't know if you're familiar with these, but that's when um, a phantom at random times during the day, kicks you in the nut that doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. And you have to not act like you've just been kicked in the nut. <clears throat> Midway through the course, my biopsy results came back. I, I had a Sertoli cell tumor. It was a type of testicular cancer that was so exceedingly rare in post-adolescent males that I was apparently the 11th documented case. My urologist actually had to do a literature search to figure out what to do with me. 
It turns out that several of those previous cases had metastasized in a manner that couldn't be detected with chest x-rays or CAT scans. So that, what that meant is I, ha I had to go back for another surgery, this time to remove all of my abdominal lymph nodes. When I heard that, I was, I was devastated. The thought of going through a second surgery didn't bother me one bit, but that meant that I wasn't going to be able to sail across the Pacific Ocean with my class, who I had bonded with so closely during that time. The next day, I went in front of my entire class and told them that I couldn't sail with them. And they were just as devastated as, as I was. I finally I felt like I had become a part of this community that truly accepted me for the first time in my life, that really cared about me. Cancer actually made me feel carefree and confident in a strange way. I started to feel this sense of freedom that I hadn't felt since before I was a teenager. I started doing things my teenage self never would have done. My research partner, Steve, and I, at the end of the, the course at Woods Hole, we painted the Pacific Equatorial Current System across our bodies, and in front of our entire class, we stripped down to our underwear to present our research proposal. <laughs> our class loved it. I had learned how to laugh and smile again. I had learned to find this happiness that I hadn't felt since before I was competitive with my twin. Two weeks later, while my class was sailing from Hawaii to Tahiti, I woke from anesthesia to find that I had been cut open from sternum to pelvis. My abdomen was held together with 20 staples and my belly was distended to twice its normal size. The epidural had slipped out, and the pain was, was absolutely, absolutely excruciating. The doctors had literally disemboweled me, moving my digestive tract aside to access the, the lymph nodes along my inferior vena cava. <clears throat> I was forced to fast for two weeks, no food or water, while my stomach was pumped. I lost 20 pounds during that period. But I discovered the magic of a urinary catheter. There's always a silver lining, right? <clears throat> One day, Kyle came to the hospital. I, we hadn't been together alone for several years. He sat down alongside my bed, his normally supremely confident self clearly shaken, and he asked me how I was doing. I, you know, I wanted to act stoic next to my twin, the Coast Guard helicopter pilot to be, to be. I said, I'm fine. I'm just, you know, waiting for the biopsy results. Uh, obviously, that was a lie. I probably looked like shit. I felt like shit. I was in the worst pain of my life. I was starving. I had no idea that whether I would live long enough to fulfill my, my dream of becoming a marine ecologist. And meanwhile, my twin brother was in the midst of fulfilling his own dream of becoming a Coast Guard search and rescue helicopter pilot. But for the first time that I could ever remember, I didn't feel competitive with him at all. I didn't feel jealous. What I felt more than anything else, more than the pain or the uncertainty for my future was just really, really fucking bored. I told Kyle that, you know, the worst thing about this whole situation is just being stuck inside this whole time. 
I realized while I was in that hospital that what I really wanted for my life, what I really truly loved, wasn't being better than Kyle at something. It wasn't being the best scientist. It was simply to be outside. And then Kyle said something that caught me completely off guard. He asked me, do you know if the type of cancer you have is genetic? He wasn't just worried about whether his twin brother might die from cancer. He was concerned about whether he could get it too. He had never before asked me if asthma was genetic or bedwetting or OCD or depression, but faced with the prospect of such a serious illness at such a young age, he was really scared. But for me, cancer was just another obstacle in the rough road of my life. I, I'd been the rough draft my whole life, going through all this rough stuff that tested and blistered me over and over again until I built the calluses that allowed me to face cancer without a single fear other than not having the opportunity to be outside again. The biopsy results came back and the cancer, the tumor had not metastasized. I was ecstatic. It was like I was given a second chance to learn how to be happy and to be myself in my life. I went undergraduate school to study kelp forest ecology. I spent so many days underwater and reveled in every incredible wildlife encounter in those amazing kelp forests. But like every scientist, I spent the vast majority of my time in an office or a lab. And that just reminded me of that sterile hospital room where I swore to myself I would never again settle for something that made me unhappy. Here I was fulfilling my life dream of being a field ecologist, doing the one thing I believed I could do better than Kyle, and I wasn't happy. On a whim, I started an apprenticeship at an organic farm, and I quickly grew to absolutely love the work. And I realized that that was what I truly wanted. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be outside, getting dirty, growing food for my community. So standing there in my advisor's office, on the verge of leaving academia, I finally felt so confident because I knew who I really was. I finally knew what truly made me happy in life. Thank you. That was Tom Young Bear. Tom had a brief career as an ecologist during which he worked as a tropical forest guide, studied coral reef fish and kelp forests, and traveled to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Since then, he has managed two organic farms, worked on a commercial fishing vessel, sailed across the Pacific using celestial navigation, and worked as the first mate of a Maine windjammer. He lives with his wife, Skylar, and their two dogs in Maine. This project was supported by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Nissa Greenberg, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall and Oberon for hosting these shows, and to the great outdoors for being great and outdoors. Thanks for listening.
This episode of The Story Collider is brought to you by 23andMe.com. Find out what your DNA says about you based on the science behind your 23 pairs of chromosomes. Order your kit today at 23andMe.com slash collider. That's the number 23andme.com slash collider.